There we are. Happy New Year to you. It's good to see you back in the beginning of a new year. I hope you had a restful and refreshing holiday. I hope you uh, had time with family and friends in the categories that matter the most. I, uh, I did a bunch of nothing. I had actually resolved that this couple of weeks, and I had two, and that's probably longer than most of you had, but I'm in the cycle of university life, and one of the upsides is they have a school calendar that allows for a little extra time, and my resolve with Karen and Parker was that uh, I would not engage in anything that remotely looked like formal ministry, that we would read the Bible for fun, and we would do a lot of nothing. And let me advocate for that. Uh, Reading the Bible for fun is a good thing. Reading a lot of the Bible for fun is a really good thing. You know, when you don't have to study, and I'm not saying this as an anti-teach or study uh, exhortation. It's more of the uh, maybe undervalued reality of what the Word of God does in volume when you just read it. And uh, I, uh, my son-in-law exposed me to a new uh, app called Dwell, W-E-L-L. And uh, it was just, just about, a, it's under a year old. It was a Kickstarter type project. But there are four voices that read the Bible to you. And uh, with a little bit of dynamic dramatics, like they're reading it as if you're listening to it, not just reading the words. And... Uh, <clears throat> It's free for seven days, and then you got to buy in. And uh, I bought in, and I, uh, I've got four Bible plans that I've been working for the last two weeks. I'm going through the Bible in a year, five days a week, doing the book of Second Kings, reading that for fun, because I haven't been in Second Kings for a while, and I know there was hardly a good king in the bunch. Certainly the northern tribes didn't have anybody that didn't end with, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he followed after the sons of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. How wouldn't you like to be the guy known as the evil guy that affected every generation after you? You talk about the sins of the fathers and the reproduction of patterns of bad behavior generationally. If you need any witness in history, look at the northern tribes. But one of the things that came out of that book, the big idea of 2 Kings, is willful sinning. Despite warning, results in ruin without a remedy. Maybe not instantly, but eventually. Ten tribes carried off to Assyria, The southern kingdom carried off to Babylon, prophet after prophet, warning after warning, miracles that you couldn't imagine. Turn, stop, repent, connect. Leader after leader, generation after generation, willful sinning, despite warning, results in ruin without remedy. Not necessarily instantly, but eventually. That's Second Kings. Now, here's my, uh, well, well, this is not a, like a combo Sunday school lesson today. This is meant to say, you know what chances are that I would be able to say that to you today without reading for fun? 
Take time to let the Word of God wash you. Resolve and read. Dwell is a good app, and it's one of many. You're going to end up have to pay for it after the seventh day, but it's good enough for me to buy in because I like my reader. Um, I'm trying to remember his name. I don't even know his name. I think it's Felix. But uh, Felix is a good reader. He's got the sound and vibe that I like, and maybe it'll help you stay faithful to keep plowing. Maybe you read like I read, where you read a little bit, and then you want to study it. And you've got the app on your phone, and you've got a bazillion support systems, and so what's up with Lot? Or why did this happen? And you get kind of turning it off on a rabbit trail of kind of study. And what I'm advocating for is not study, but reading. Let the Bible in its broader con not, not that you shouldn't study, don't misunderstand, but the value of just reading. And uh, I want to encourage in that way. I had a good and rich and meaningful holiday. I was telling Matt and Tina, Karen and I met up. We began to read James again. We did that for 68 days in a row last year. Um, I told you it was like somebody knocking at the door every day saying, I've spread money out in the yard. Go pick up all you want. It takes 14 minutes. That's all you have. That's James for me, 14 minutes, Karen and I. And it's like free money, spiritual money. You either go out and get it or you don't get it. But it's there every day. And uh, over the holiday, I, I said to Karen, you know what? What in the world is wrong with me to abandon what was so valuable? And so part of what the holiday is for us, and I hope it is for you, is resolutions to say, you know what, I'm going to recalibrate. I'm going to make sure that the things that matter the most are reflected in the things that I do the most. Can you say amen to that? So this is just a little pastoral elder reflection time to say, hey, don't waste the beginning of a new year. Most people abandon their resolutions within 21 days. But that's not to say that a resolution isn't worth making and a resolve to adjust and calibrate and align. You know, Karen, I'm not going to trade away the things that matter the most for things that are good, but in the end, don't matter so much. So that's my encouragement to you. I hope you had a good beginning of your year. It's not too late to say this is January 5. You can say, you know what? I'm going, to, I'm going to make some adjustments. I'm going to invite some people into my life for accountability. And I'm going to do my best that 2020 is the best year I have ever had. And listen to me. This can be the best year you've ever had. Because if you'll cooperate with the intentions of God, that is his intention. That you grow in grace and that you advance as a follower of Jesus Christ. You agree with that? That's true. So 2020 could be the best year you ever had. Cooperate with God. Invest in the things that matter the most. And I'm advocating for reading. And uh, find a way to do that in volume and experiment. 21 days to establish a habit. 60 days to establish a lifelong habit try it. And you can come up to me in the future and say, that was a bad suggestion, Harry. 
but I, I, I won't expect to hear from you in that way. All right, we're in James. Can you believe it? We're at the end of chapter one. <laughs> we're in the high speed. Oh, one of the cool things about dwell is you can adjust the speed of the reader. <laughs> you can adjust the volume of the music, and you can because there's hymns in the background and the speed of the reader. And uh, unfortunately, you can't adjust my speed. Uh, yeah, we're slow, but we're digging in and enjoying it. So we're in James chapter one, verse twenty-seven. So, why are we in this book, and why does it matter? And Mark already alluded to it as he led us in worship today, so that we'll live like a real Christian ought to live. James is real Christianity. It's the oldest book in the New Testament by way of time. It's early. The church has, the early church, the Jerusalem church has been dispersed because of persecution and they weren't too far down the track when they were driven out of Jerusalem by that persecution and James is the head of the church at Jerusalem, the chief leader and spokesperson of the early church, apparently receives word about the inconsistency of the claim, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, I'm a disciple, and the behavior of those claimers. The professors weren't livers. They weren't living in a way that reflected real Christianity, genuine faith. Because you can give lip service to faith. You can come to Grace Church and talk like a Christian. You can dress like a Christian and not be a Christian. Because faith is validated by the way it lives. James is the lifestyle and the convictions of a biblical Christian. This is foundational. It's only 108 verses. That's why you can read it in 14 minutes. But it has 60 things that you must do or you must not do. Imperatives, non-negotiables, things that ought to reflect your Christianity. And if it doesn't, then you can't have confidence that your claim is genuine. Faith without works is both useless and dead. So James is about living it, how a Christian thinks and lives. It's real religion. And in James chapter 1, at the very end, we're talking about an installment that he is making about how religion lives and works and acts as it relates to the most vulnerable and as it relates to the purity of your heart and life. So we're in verse 27. This is actually the third week we've talked about this verse. We've talked about different aspects of what God calls pure and undefiled religion. Verse 27, real Christianity. This is pure This is a static present. This is an axiomatic reality. It's non-negotiable. This is a fact. This is pure, which is untainted, unpolluted, clean, without any undesirable elements. This is pure and undefiled, untainted, unmarked religion. Religion in this context, is real worship. It's not religion like you're robed and you talk formally, you use religious words and you go through religious rituals. 
This word is religion that's revealed in God-fearing and God-pleasing living. This is real religion. This is real Christianity. This is maybe a better way to put it, true worship. This is axiomatic truth, state of being verb. As prescribed by God, this is pure, untainted, true worship in the sight of God. In other words, if you were standing in his presence or he was watching you in your reality, he would look at that and say, that's pure. I like that. That's untainted worship in the sight of God. If God's a witness of it, this is what he applauds. This is what pleases him. This is what qualifies as true worship. This is fact, pure and undefiled religion or worship in the sight of our God. So it's our Father, somebody that not just requires things of us, but provides things for us. This is not just a sovereign. This is relational. In his sight, he is a father, heart and soul. Verse 27, here it is, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. To visit, to go and see, to help and support not just dropping by, it's going to investigate and examine. In their distress, thlipsis, which is a hard word to say, means in their most difficult circumstance. Has to do with they're under pressure, they're in a difficult place. Literally, this word comes from a word which means to be broken. So you're dealing with someone without support the vulnerable, whether it's a child who doesn't have a parent to care for it, or whether it's a widow who doesn't have a husband to provide and protect for her. You proactively go to visit, to investigate, to inquire, to pursue, to examine the situation to the end that you can help and support them. So we talked about the priority of what a Christian should be and do. And remember, we talked about a widow in this context, and it's used uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 5. The word for widow in our culture means your husband has passed. They're not living. But in that culture, the Greek word for widow, kira, is a person or a woman without someone to care for her. They are someone who has literally suffered loss. They are someone in that culture who didn't have someone to provide and to protect through death, through desertion, because sometimes as a Christian, a woman could become a Christian. She's married to an unsaved man. He decides, 1 Corinthians 7, I don't like the the, the way that you're changing. I don't like the way you've begun living. And they abandon them. So divorce maybe immorality, maybe polygamy. In that culture, it was not uncommon to have multiple wives and other women to be a part of a a man's life, and so a woman could easily end up alone. This is that category. 
So just for our understanding, you're not just dealing with women who have a husband who has died. You're dealing with women whose husband may have abandoned them, divorced them, or chose someone else instead of them. This would encompass all the cases where someone has ended up abandoned and alone, unprotected. Here's pure religion, paying attention to them. Go over to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and I just want to punctuate this with a couple of words of encouragement. Because here's one of the big ideas of James. Be a doer, not a hearer only. You deceive yourself if you hear the truth and you don't apply it. You deceive yourself if you read the truth and you don't live it. Remember the word delude or deceive is the word for it's irrational. You could literally say it's insane. It's insane for a Christian to know what to do and not to do it, and yet we get good at it because we hear so much of the truth, it comes in and it goes out, or it comes in and we don't choose to act on it. That's irrational. Real Christians are changed by the word and are changing by the word. Changing means I adjust my lifestyle and I invest if it's true that pure before God religion, the kind that he would accept as undefiled and untainted, the most pure and the most pristine, the most desirable, involves caring for the vulnerable, visiting the vulnerable, helping the helpless. The question you have to ask is, how does my life reflect that? And I said it to you several weeks ago now, you can't do everything, but you need to do something. What is it that you're to do? Verse 5, or verse 3 rather, of chapter 5, 1 Timothy, is honor widows who are widows indeed. Honor means to to value them, to care for them, respect them, pay attention to them, elevate the priority. Don't treat them as discards or isolated or marginalized. This is written to the church, Paul to Timothy, honor widows. Widows who are indeed widows, and we'll You'll see that in a minute. But if any widow has children, and maybe this is what you should think about as we think about what to do for widows in terms of practical ways, as God ranks the care of orphans and widows among the highest expressions of our faith, is to recognize there is to be a hierarchy of support that guarantees that they're valued and cared for in their vulnerable condition. That hierarchy begins first with family, verse 4. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety. That would be true religion in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Verse 8, if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he's denied the face faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. Look over at the verse 16. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, now the assumption is you got someone who's maybe a, a widowed grandmother who has dependent widows, daughters or 
granddaughters in her care. If any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, let her assist them and let not the church be burdened so that they may assist those who are widows indeed. So you have a hierarchy of support. You have a responsibility as a family member, and we collectively as a church have a responsibility to provide care for that person, to encourage. And and here's part of the role. Remember Jesus when he was on the cross, John 19, 26, and 27. Remember, he cared for his mother in the midst of his most difficult scenario possible. Matter of fact, let me read it to you so you can appreciate how critical this is as modeled by our Savior. John 19. This is Jesus on the cross. Therefore, the soldiers did these things, but there were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that would be John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, John, the apostle, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. That's the idea. I'm going to care for those in my care. And you're to to demonstrate concern for the widow, because obviously Jesus was the caregiver as the eldest son in his family, the provider. And with him gone, it would be necessary would have that kind of provision and that kind of help indeed. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and let me just make a couple other statements about widows. And the whole goal of this is just to kind of collect you back to something we taught about the importance to a woman in that condition to be included, connection, to enjoy conversation because there's often isolation. There needs sometimes to be provision and protection. Family first, but the community of faith, treating a woman in that condition, a woman, a widow indeed, with the kind of care and concern that reflects the value that God places on the most vulnerable because he is a champion of those in need. So 1 Timothy chapter 5 goes on to talk about how that there are certain widows beyond the care of their family that should be honored, and you evaluate those to see who is to receive support from the church. What is a widow indeed that would enjoy the support of the church? And that's what the rest of the passage, and I don't have time to unpack it all, but I want to highlight some things for you just to get you thinking about what we need to be doing for widows and what you need to be doing for widows. Now, she who is a widow, verse 5, indeed has been left alone. Okay, so that's her condition. She's alone. She doesn't have the care of family but she has fixed her hope on God. So they must be on their own. They must be believers who have set their hope on God. It's a perfect tense verb. They've believed in the past. They continue to live in the faith and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. She's a godly girl. She's a godly gal. She's spiritual, not carnal. She does not give, verse 6, herself to wanton pleasure. Otherwise, she would be dead even while she lives. She would be 
empty from the inside out. So if you find a woman in your midst who's a widow indeed, she's on her own, she is a believer, she set her hope on God, she's godly, she's a prayer not carnal, living for pleasure, then you ought to consider how it is that you as a community and you as an individual can engage in a way to support them, to help them. Verse 7, prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach, both the women and those who serve those women. Then it goes on to talk about, and I'm not going to walk our way through this, but it just talks about utilizing godly widows in ministry. That when a woman who is that kind of a woman reaches an age of maturity, in this case 60, And she is characterized by qualities that are undeniable. There's five qualities listed here. The church ought to consider taking her into their support as a ministry agent in the church. Older, mature, those who practice hospitality, those who practice humility, those who help others in distress, those who raise children, whether their own children or those that they've taken in. They are modeling it. There's a place of ministry for a widow. Maybe I would say this to you, if you are a widow, there's a place for you in the church to serve the church and women in the church to help guide, direct, counsel, coach, model, mentor, So widows have a place, and the church, part of what we do when we honor them is we evaluate them, we see who to support, and we also consider utilizing these widows in terms of ministry opportunity. Listen, I would like us to be thoughtful about who in our midst may need our kind of support. So we we need to identify and make sure that care is given for those who are not being cared for because they're vulnerable and they're exposed in a way that makes them particularly um, exposed to difficult days and hurtful days because they don't enjoy the care of a caregiver. All right, let's go back to James chapter 1. So what are we doing? What are you doing How are you investing? That's the question. And then we had orphans, and we talked about that. Foster care, adoption. We talked about the ways you can get involved. Something that might interest you is what's called respite care. Fostering is when you take somebody in your home for an extended period of time, and there's a process for that. You obviously know what adoption is. Those are obviously high-value, high-investment categories. But there's something called respite care, which is shorter, short-term foster care, 24 hours to less than 14 days. And an extremely helpful to have short and regular periods of time where foster parents or families in need can enjoy a solution of support, someone like you who can take in a child who otherwise would be in a very vulnerable place, and you would care for them Not indefinitely, but 24 hours to 14 days. There's also certified babysitters. If there's a family that's fostering, one of the things they need is babysitting. 
They need a break. They need to recharge. They need to refresh. And you can get certified as a babysitter because you have to be certified in order to serve in that way. And you can step in and babysit. You can be a court-appointed advocate. Rusty talked about that. You can be a safe family where you're just temporarily a, a, an oasis for some group, a family where parents are in difficult places. They're going through a temporary crisis. All of these things you can sign up for and become a part of. And obviously, you can be a financial supporter. I just want to suggest to you that don't think that visiting widows in distress is only sending money to somebody who is visiting widows in distress. It is actually choosing to be engaged. So, This is really just catching you back up to where we landed. Here's what God likes. If you were standing in front of him and he's watching and he wants to applaud something or approve of something or elevate something and say, you know what? I like that. That's pure and pristine in my eyes. You find the vulnerable and you visit them and you help and support them. A widow, an orphan, someone in distress, someone in need, and you step up. And you don't count on somebody else to do that. You proactively do that because the word visit is a present infinitive. It's something you do. It's part of how you do your Christianity. That's what real Christianity is. It visits the vulnerable and it helps the helpless. Can you say amen to that? All right, so we get through. There's a third priority. Look at the end of verse 27, which is interesting, that you would have visiting orphans and widows in their distress, and this copulative, this connective word, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Here's a biblical conviction. Here's a James biblical priority. Real Christians show compassionate charity and a passion for personal purity. True Christians have this conviction. I must have not just a pursuing heart for those in need. I must have a passion for personal purity. Because I recognize that staying unstained is another non-negotiable in the eyes of God as an expression of true and pure religion. My personal purity matters. And listen to this. I think the why it's linked here is because an absence of personal purity will corrupt your ministry. It'll infect. If I'm not a pure person and I engage a vulnerable person, I can use, misuse, and harm that person. Because vulnerable people are exposed in ways where they need protection. And if I'm not a pure man, if I'm not a pure woman, I can injure them instead of help them. Unspotted is what I want to challenge you to today. Stay unstained. What are the external validations of religion? What dress does religion wear? This is Spurgeon, pomp and robes, religious words? No, charity and purity are the two great garments of Christianity, end quote. So let's look at what the text says, and I want to unpack this for you just 
because it's the Bible, it's inspired, every word matters, verbal plenary inspiration, to keep from teros, to guard or to protect. It's used of guarding something one, and it includes vigilance, like the secret service. When they're doing their job, their head is up, their eyes are open. I mean, I, I watched one of our security guys here at Grace, second row, couple of Sundays ago, I don't know if he saw John MacArthur one time because he was looking left into the area I was at there on the left side as you look at the platform, and he was surveying. And I don't know if we had a special heads-up warning to our security team, but I'll tell you what, and I'll bet you we have one this week after what happened in Texas. That kind of vigilance, that kind of heads-up, guard, protect, That's the word keep. It is to, and it is a present tense infinitive. It is a way of living, and it involves self-policing. Notice what it says. Keep oneself. Self-policing, self-protecting, spiritually guarding and protecting yourself. It's constant. It's proactive. It involves effort. It involves focus to preserve and protect yourself from contaminating influence. Cultural soul dirt. That'll stain your heart, your mind, and your soul. There's another thing of notice in the grammar of this verse. Unstained is in the emphatic position, which means it's placed grammatically as a point of emphasis to say there is to be absolutely no spot or blemish. You're to be untainted, unpolluted, and unmarked. Think white shirt or blouse without a single mark on it. Think of your heart and soul and your spiritual person as something that God desires that you proactively protect yourself so there's no soiling, no spotting, no marks. That's the idea. This is a priority, and this is an emphasis of true and pure religion. Let me bottom line, if I were James, I would say, listen, cornerstone, genuine faith is validated in a proactive priority to be holy and pure, uncontaminated by the world. How's that for a New Year's resolution? Here's how Peter would say it when he validates this priority in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, when he says to the body of Christ, be diligent, Spudazzo, put forth every effort to the point of pain. That's what diligent is. It's doing it quick, it's doing it energetically, and it's doing to the point of pain. Be diligent to be found by Jesus in peace, spotless, that's our word, and blameless. 2 Peter 3.14. Paul confirms by declaring that Christians are to be like Timothy, whom Paul was exhorting, quote, to keep the commandment, and the commandment he's referring to, the one to be kept, means to flee carnal and material lust and remain faithful to the testimony of the gospel. That's what Paul had just commanded Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Keep the commandment without stain. Don't let carnality and the materialistic culture, the world in which you live, 
and thoughts that compete with the truth of the gospel, don't let the world encroach and stain you. Keep the commandment and do so spotlessly without stain or reproach until the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, all the way to the end. James 1 says, keep yourself unstained by what? The world, the cosmos, that's the word. Cosmos is a word which means something ordered. That's why we get our word cosmetics from it. It has the idea of ordered design. If you're putting on makeup, the idea is, is that there's some design to it. It is meant to enhance. It is ordered. It is purposeful. Cosmos is the world system, a design and structure of this earthly kingdom as governed, ordered, and led by, listen to this, the God of this world, and supported by the godless depravity of those in this world. The world system represents the God of this world's influence and ordered and governed design. 1 John 5.19 declares the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So when you look at societal structures, media, and mentalities, you're looking at a world that represents a system, an ordered design governed by the God of this world, the enemy of God, and supported by the godless who inhabit this world. The cosmos is this world order. It is a designed and organized system, listen to this, that purposely promotes life apart from God and is adversarial to the honor and will of God by promoting the priority of things not God. I want to say that again. The cosmos is this world order. This system that is designed and organized to promote purposefully life apart from God and is adversarial to the honor and will of God. How? By primarily promoting the priority of things not God. Let me tell you what the world is. It is an idolatrous system that doesn't elevate God, honor God, obey God, but is antithetical and adversarial to God and the things that matter to God. James in chapter 4 says, if you're aligned with this system and thought, word, or practice, James 4, 4, if you've become a friend of the world, you have become a what? An enemy of God. Now, contextually, what is the world in this context? The world in this context, and I want you to think about this as it relates to the system And the thoughts, because Colossians chapter 2 says there are elementary principles, there's philosophies in the world, there's governing thinking. It's demonic, it's depraved, it's dark, and it's swift in our culture. And James says, here's pure religion. I want you to help the helpless. I want you to visit the vulnerable. And I don't want you to be contaminated by the culture in which you live, the world, the system that is anti-God and the things that matter to God. Now, imagine there's no chapter break at the end of chapter two, or chapter one, rather. Imagine you're just reading this letter from James. What is the very first 
kind of worldly thinking that he addresses in chapter 2. It involves a worldly, materialistic influence and mindset, a mindset that says, I'm going to prefer certain kinds of people of influence. Let me say it this way. I'm going to take special care of people of high rank or capacity. Those people that if I take care of them, listen to this, are going to be able to take care of me. Stay unspotted from a give-to-get mentality. Look at chapter 2. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. We're going to talk about prejudice and partiality next time. But listen to this. You just said stay unspotted. Unspotted from what? From personal prejudice or personal favoritism. And here's the example. For if a man comes into your assembly with gold rings and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine stuff and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, you sit down by my footstool. Are you not making distinctions among yourselves? And watch this, verse 4, and become judges with evil motives. What are the evil motives? The worldly thinking that says, I'll take care of the people who can reward me for the investment I make in them. Guess what orphans and widows aren't? People you can give to that can give back to you. Unstained Christianity, unpolluted Christianity is the kind of Christianity that doesn't measure what you can do for me to decide what I'll do to help you. You've got material means. You've got an elevated status. I'm going to take care of you. You don't, I won't. That's the context. So I'm going to argue first and foremost out of the gate when James says, keep unspotted, unstained, uninfluenced, protect yourself from the encroaching mindset of a demonic culture and a depraved world. Don't get into the give to get mentality. Don't become materialistic and measure your generosity by what you'll receive. That's the context. Stay pure in motive by helping the helpless and those who cannot give back. Now turn over to 1 John chapter 2 for a familiar section. I want to talk more broadly, contextually. I want to talk about really universally. I want to talk about the universal core of the cosmos system that denies God and dishonors God by promoting life without him or a lifestyle which is disobedient to him. You know this passage, 1 John 2, verses 15, 16, and 17, because it's going to reference the cosmos, and it's going to tell you kind of the core ingredients that it consists of, that it's characterized by. Do not love the world, verse 15, 1 John. Do not love the world. Not talking about creation. It's talking about this system, this cosmos. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Verse 16, for all that is in the world. So let's talk about what can stain you that the world consists of. The lust of the flesh or the desire of the flesh. It's a strong desire of the flesh. This has to do with the stain of carnal gratification. 
the system that promotes fleshly, immoral gratification outside the prescriptive revelation of a good God. The world is not interested in morality the way that God prescribes it. The world is saturated with messages and influence that would suggest that I can step out of the boundaries of personal moral purity, sexual purity. God says the lust of the flesh belongs to the world. The lust of the flesh promotes immoral gratification outside the prescriptive revelation. And I put a good God because when God says no, it's a good thing. It's not motivated to handicap you in terms of the joy and fulfillment of life. It's designed to protect you, to maximize the way he designed life to fulfill. John goes on to say, the lust of the eyes. This is the stain of carnal, excuse me, of material acquisition. Not carnal gratification, but the culture, the world consists of a desire of the eyes, material acquisition, the system that promotes, and here's how I'd put it, the wanting and having more, better, and nicer. It's what drives Madison Avenue. There would be no successful business without the promotion and the idea that the one I have isn't good enough. There's a better one. That's the desire of the eyes, the system that promotes wanting and having more, better, and nicer. And then the world also consists of the boastful pride of life. This is the stain of what I'm going to call personal elevation, the system that sells a lifestyle. And it includes the toxin of, I need to go first class. I deserve it. I require it. This is about self-elevation. This is the pride of my stuff and my position. It's personal elevation. These are the core and chief characteristics of the world that we are to guard against being stained and spotted by. And John goes on to say, this world, this system is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God, he abides forever. Christian act, that's a conviction. To stay, I'm committing myself to stay unstained. Let me give you some practical things to implement what I'm going to call Christian action. I just talked about the Christian conviction. I'm going to give you three quick things to apply by way of action. How do you keep yourself unstained from the world? I'm going to give you three things. Number one, your success depends on some key commitments. Number one, avoid it. Avoid it. This is the Proverbs 5.8 principle. Don't go near the door of her house. Immoral gratification source, don't go near it. Stay away from it. This is prevention. This is purity protection. This is keeping yourself unstained because you prudently prevent exposure to the mud of carnality and immorality and materialism. I avoid the places that prompt that kind of desire where that world is governed that way. My son-in-law was telling me he was a graduate of Auburn, and as an Auburn student, he and some buddies from his uh, school went to Vegas. And they enjoyed what you do enjoy in Vegas before he became a Christian. And now John, my son-in-law, has become a Christian, and his buddy called him last week, and I was telling John what I was going to teach on this Sunday. 
And uh, he said, that's interesting. He said, because my buddy from Auburn, who's been working really hard, said, man, I want to get away. I want to get refreshed. I want to renew. I want to go to Vegas. Why don't you come to Vegas and join me? It's not that far from California. So he was inviting him to reunite in Vegas. And my son-in-law said, I'm not the same guy I was when we were college roommates. I have no desire to go. I said, John, why did you say that? He said, because Vegas will definitely not help me advance as a man. Or maybe worse, nothing good and much potential bad which led him to, you know, gave him the opportunity to share his testimony. Listen, that's what I mean by avoid it. There are certain places a Christian doesn't need to be. There are certain places you don't need to go. You need to avoid it. I told you I'm reading the Bible for fun. I'm just reading through Genesis, and I'm reading about Lot. And Lot says, I'm going to go to Sodom. There's a plan. You go anywhere you want. I'll go somewhere else. That's what Abram said. So he said, I'm going to Sodom. Do you think Sodom didn't have a reputation when Lot chose to live there? I mean, he went to the gates and he's a part of the city. Hebrews says he was vexed in his soul every day. Vexed, you know what that is? Tortured and tormented. I take that to mean that what mattered to him as a true follower of God, Yahweh, was not advanced by Sodom, but it injured his soul. It hurt him. And then he didn't live by conviction because you remember that when the angels of the Lord visited, he compromised his values. Instead of protecting his daughters, he said, you take them. Who does that? I'll tell you who does that. Somebody who's in a perverse city being influenced by a perverse people. You don't start there, you get there. And if that wasn't enough, he lost his wife. He mistrusted the angels who said, go to Zoar and stay there. He said, I'm going to a cave because it's not safe in Zoar. Which resulted in an incestuous union between his daughters, who he not only was willing to give away, but not coach They're thinking, man, if we don't reproduce, there's nobody because God's destroying the whole world. Here's Lot who could have informed his daughters because he didn't inform his daughters. They're compromised. He's compromised. And the progeny of that union became the enemies of God for centuries. So I asked Lot, Should you avoid exposure or seek it? Staying unstained means you're prudent enough and smart enough to stay away. It is proactively keeping yourself unstained because you preemptively prevent unwanted exposure to the carnal stain agents that corrupt and soil the soul. Smart Christians are prudent Christians. Pure Christians have made choices that other people don't make. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Can you say amen to that?
Listen, God says, Harriet, I want you to be passionate about your purity. Well, being passionate about my purity is saying no to things that can jeopardize my purity. Let me say one more thing. And sometimes things happen you can't anticipate, but you need to anticipate both the places you go and the potential that abide there. You can go to, I went to see The Rise of Skywalker. I never go to see movies, but I went to see The Rise of Skywalker. You know, when you go to a movie, and it's, I don't know that I should say, yeah, it's a clean movie. But the trailers before a movie, you can't count on. Anticipation says, I know where I'm going, and I know the potential there that can harm me. I know the program that I'm inclined to watch. I know the commercials. I know what they run ahead of time. I, listen, I'm not trying to create prudishness in you. I'm trying to create maturity in you because to God, your soul matters. And there's things that Christians ought not listen to and things Christians ought not see, not because of legalism, but because of the wisdom of being a worshiper that God would go, now that's true religion. Are you with me? I drove my wife's car here today. This is a blue jacket, navy blue, you can see that. It is not supposed to have dog hair all over it. I threw my jacket in the back of the Jeep, not realizing that Karen's dachshund, happy, had taken a ride with Karen. I get this out of the Jeep this morning. Guess what? I look like a dachshund. I've got red hair all over it. Sometimes you get impacted by things you don't know, but you need to learn So you could, guess what I won't do next time? Here's a lesson for the passionate to be pure. Learn lessons from life. My favorite master's pullover, it's white. It's a Callaway. I got it. Did you get one, Matt, at the golf tournament? I know you did, Ryan. It's my favorite one. I'm trying to sneak by. This Jeep is a problem. It's got a spare tire on the back. I'm trying to sneak by in my garage without putting the garage door up, and I... I smudge the tire. You ought to see my nice white Callaway. It's got a big mark on it. You know what happened since that happened? I'm walking around the Jeep, or I'm putting the door up to the garage. You know why? I can't get the smudge off. Listen, your soul and its purity, its whiteness matters to heaven. Protect it. It's not casual, it's proactive. Do what it takes. Avoid it. Second word I would have given you is run from it. This is the Joseph Genesis 38 deal. Sometimes the world is proactive. You don't have to be looking for it, it's looking for you. Potiphar's wife was chasing him every day. Run from it. You don't have to be looking for carnality. You don't have to be looking. How far do you have to look to get an advertisement that promotes buying something you don't need? Just go on Amazon one time. eBay just sent me a thing saying, hey, based on your searches, here's some options for you today. Ooh, I might need that. (laughs) That's proactive. You don't have to go looking for it. It's looking for you. Avoid it. Run from it. 
Can you come back next week and I'll be here? I'll give you the last one. (laughs) Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word in this new year. This is inspired revelation. This is the revelation of reality. This is not the way we think it is. This is the way it is. This is the truth. Lord, as we enter into the new year, we want to calibrate on it like magnetic north, like a tuning fork for an instrument. We want to live in light of this reality, not just be able to quote the verses or know the references, but to actually live this out. We want to visit the vulnerable. We want to help the helpless, and we want to stay unstained. We want to police ourselves as if our soul matters in the ways that it matters to you. Grant us the grace for that, the maturity for that, the wisdom for that, so that we can be true worshipers in the sight of God, Father, in whose name I pray, amen.